Hello, I am clinical psychologist Peter Melanowski, and welcome to this summary of Chapter 13, Doing Inner Work Safely, of the book Internal Family Systems Therapy, Second Edition by Richard Schwartz and Martha Sweezy. In these chapter summaries, I just review and say in different words what the chapter brings out. I highlight the main points. I may bring in some different language just to help those of you, especially those who are auditory learners, to be able to take it in in another form. So to get right into it, I just love the opening line of this chapter. Dick and Martha say, every IFS therapist gets stuck. Every IFS therapist gets stuck. I think sometimes we have a fantasy that once we get level two training or once we get level three training or once we get IFIO training or whatever it is, that we might get to this place where we never get stuck, where everything flows smoothly. That can be a fantasy that some of our parts have. And I just like how they get into that getting stuck is, quote, integral to the experience of being any kind of therapist. And secondly, getting stuck is unavoidable when we engage in a paradigm shift, especially when we're transitioning from some other therapeutic modality, EFT, CBT, psychodynamic, whatever, interpersonal, whatever we're coming from is going to be different from IFS. And as Dick and Martha so often recommend, getting your own IFS therapy is so helpful to being able to understand and really grip onto what IFS is all about. Approaching an exile safely. Managers, if we're respectful of their concerns, if we engage with them, if they are able to be reassured about the whole process of therapy, they're going to create space for us to be able to access exiles. That can bring up firefighters, and sometimes firefighters can engage in dangerous behaviors. But if we're courageous, if we're compassionate, if we persist, firefighters will usually disclose their concerns as well. Right. Firefighters, according to Dick and Martha, really need to feel hopeful. They need to have confidence that this process is going to go well and that the client system is not going to be unnecessarily imperiled. If firefighters can see the rationale, if they can see how there is a reason for why they might step back, if they can begin to believe in the self of the client having what it needs to govern the system effectively, they can begin to stand down. And also, if they're going to be freed from their roles, if there's this sense that life could be very much better, not only for the exiles, but also for the firefighters themselves, that helps as well. We really address the needs of the parts in a very relational way. Parts cannot change in isolation. They need help for that. And so if we're sensitive, again, in this ecological way, in this systemic way, we can pick up on that. One major risk factor that can bring up unnecessary danger is going too fast. Dick and Martha have a whole section in this chapter on going too fast. We really want to be in touch as much as possible with the client's self, especially at the end of the session. We want to make sure that we reconnect there. If a part is unwilling to unblend at the end of a session, we check in with that part. We see why it wants to remain in charge, why it wants to govern the system instead of the self. And we can discuss its reasons for that. 
Dick and Martha say it's better for a client to leave with a part in charge than to get into a power struggle with that part. We rarely are going to get anywhere by arguing with the client's parts. Usually that's our own parts as therapists engaging in some kind of battle with the client's parts, and that's not helpful. If we have unnecessarily upset a part, we can apologize for that. We can promise to consult with that part, respect that part, and acknowledge what we've contributed to the conflict from within our own systems as therapists. If an exile won't unblend, we want to emphasize that this whole therapy, this whole IFS approach is all about liberating exiles from their burdens. And we want to do that as soon as possible, but we need their cooperation and we're going to need the client's self. So if they're willing to give us just a little space so that client's self can emerge, things are going to go much better. And oftentimes exiles are willing to experiment with that and see that it actually is true. Many exiles fear unblending even a little bit, Dick and Martha tell us, because that little bit of room that they might offer could be taken by a protector that would again attempt to banish them, exile them, and imprison them in a place where they would no longer be given any kind of expression of their needs. One of the things that is a very consistent theme in IFS is that therapist parts can create a lot of difficulties in the therapy. If we as therapists have been blended with our own parts, and especially our own extreme parts, which evoke or provoke the client's extreme parts, then there's a risk of hopelessness entering into the client's system. Then there can also be a sense of betrayal. Right? So we really want to be aware of where we are with our own parts, especially when our own parts are feeling unsteady or uncertain about where the therapy is going. You know, but this beautiful thing about IFS therapy is that if the therapist believes that his or her own reactive parts were blending and causing unnecessary difficulties with the client's parts, you can apologize. We can apologize to our clients. That apology, again, should be self-led, right? It shouldn't be just another part trying to smooth things over or things like that. You can have apologies that look like that. But if we really believe that our reactive parts were causing difficulties in the session, we can own that. It's great modeling for our clients. Remember that any extreme behavior from a client's part, or from our own parts for that matter, is an attempt to protect. There is a good intention behind that, often around safety and security. It's about self-preservation rather than wanton destruction or anything like that. Where do IFS therapists commonly get stuck? In this chapter, Dick and Martha list several areas. The first one, therapist insecurity. The second is therapists taking too much responsibility for their clients. The third is in not detecting parts or misreading parts. The fourth is in not fully exploring a part's constraints. The fifth is in not working with the client's external context, the external system of the client adequately. And the sixth is about therapist parts intervening and creating difficulties. So let's just go through these one at a time. Therapist insecurities. It's difficult. Let's just admit it. When you start out with this radical paradigm shift, when you're coming into IFS therapy, 
perhaps from having done decades of work in another modality, there's a transition there. And clients' protectors are really sensitive to how much confidence the therapist has coming in. Dick and Martha write that clients will not and should not open the door to their inner worlds for anyone who is not sure of what they're doing, right? So there's this sort of catch-22. How do you get the experience to become confident in doing IFS when you haven't yet done IFS long enough to develop that confidence? Well, there's a general gradual entry for most people. Even IFS therapists that have a lot of experience will get stuck regularly Dick and Martha write, because the internal world is unpredictable. It's full of surprises. I, I, I so heartily agree with this. There are so many things that are not as parts might have thought them to be, not as our therapist parts may have predicted, not as our analytical parts may have construed. When you actually get into the inner world of clients, there is so much going on. There's such variety. There are so many different ways that systems can be organized, so many different ways that parts can present that it's amazing. So it's natural that we won't always know what's going on. The unpredictable nature of the process, that can be challenging for folks that are new to IFS. It's particularly difficult for for therapists who have parts that need to be in control or need to be experts. If we're stuck, but we can still be in self, things will work out. The danger is that parts of us as therapists get nervous and they disconnect from the self and they begin to act autonomously, no longer self-governed, trying to bring in solutions in order to protect us as therapists. Dick and Martha talk about the faith in self-energy is probably the single most important quality IFS teachers and supervisors bring to beginners. The faith in the self, the self of the client and the self of the therapist. So experience helps us to believe that this actually works, but it also nurtures flexibility, Dick and Martha tell us. There are protocols within IFS, but they're not meant to be rigidly adhered to as though we were short order cooks that had to follow the recipe exactly the same way all the time. As therapists, we're supposed to be more like chefs. We understand the principles behind what we're doing And so therefore, we can make adjustments on the fly because we have an understanding of how it actually works. We don't actually have to follow some sort of manualized guidelines to the letter. There's a really important line here on page 177 where Martha and Dick say, generally mistakes become dangerous due to fearful protectors in the therapist. I think that's really, really important. We need to be able to make mistakes and to feel comfortable making mistakes and to understand that the process of IFS is robust enough to overcome mistakes. All right, so therapist responsibility in IFS. Many therapists work really, really hard. They're trying to provide what the clients presumably lack, whether that's insight or whether that's interpretation or whether that's an adequate attachment figure. The therapist is supposed to step in the breach and make it up for the client. That's what a lot of therapists assume, but it's not that way in IFS. However, IFS therapists can be drawn back into that if, according to their their parts, things don't seem to be going as expected. And so 
when clients encounter therapists who are acting in that expert role, there's a likelihood of much more, quote, resistance, end quote, or parts digging their heels in because there is this sense that the therapist is also trying to control. So we need to be asking ourselves as therapists, do I have an agenda here that I'm trying to impose on my client? Do I have a sense of urgency? Am I trying too hard? Those are really important questions to be able to to ask and to answer within ourselves because it can key us in to as to whether we're really being self-led or not. Dick and Martha say on page 178, when we act the expert in IFS therapy, we undermine our main therapeutic goal, which is for our clients' parts to learn to trust and look to the client's self. See that difference? We can't can't have it both ways. We can't be the one to be the expert, to be the one guiding and, and showing the client the way, and at the same time be encouraging the client's self to be taking over that responsibility within the client's system. So the next area in which IFS therapists commonly get stuck is in parts detection. There are some important indicators when a client protector is blended with the client's self. That can be the client's being confused, where the client just doesn't isn't able to access curiosity, doesn't know how to relate to a part, can no longer see or experience parts. There can be intellectualization coming in. There can be this lengthy discussion about what happened, updating on what happened in the last week. All of that can indicate that protectors are blended with the client self. You know, sometimes these protectors can sound really reasonable. They can be convincing. They can draw the therapist's parts in to the narrative in a way that's actually avoiding dealing with other parts that are really distressed and need help. So once we detect that a protector is active, we can invite the client self to interact with it via insight. Or if that's really not available, we can work with that protector directly via direct access. It's really important that we not get into polarizations or alignments with our client's protector parts. They're going to pull for us in various ways. And if they can hook our parts, we can wind up in those, in those situations where we're polarized or where we're aligned because of our own parts. What we want to do instead, though, is ask about the protector's needs. What is it? that's leading it to get activated in the way it is? What is it worried about? What are, what are its fears? Remember that sixth F, fears? What does it need? What does it fear? If they won't engage and they're still really blended, we can begin to speculate. And there's two main common protector fears. One is emotional overwhelm by an exile and another is protector job loss, right? What would become of me if I no longer had this role in the system of protecting? And so we can speculate about those out loud if the protector isn't really engaging with us about its needs. A lot of times that'll help break the ice and help to get the protector more involved in discussing what its real needs are if it's not one of those two. So the self-like manager part, that is something that often is able to elude detection with less experienced IFS therapists because a self-like manager part can appear to have the qualities of the self. 
The problem is, though, that the caretaking and kindness of the self-like manager part includes an agenda of continuing to banish exiles. So how do we know if it's a self-like manager part instead of the self that's governing the client system in the moment? One is a lack of progress in therapy, despite apparent self-energy. The second is that exiles are refusing to interact with or be comforted by the self-like manager part who's in the role of the self. So there's these subtle ways. Also, there's always something a little off or a little hollow in the way that a self-like manager part interacts with other parts. Because remember, a self-like manager part has an agenda. And that agenda, sooner or later, will be made manifest. Next area where IFS therapists get stuck is in not fully exploring a part's constraints. We need to be very cognizant that the part is not its role. The part has a role in the system, but those roles can change. Those roles often were something that the part was forced into or that it took on voluntarily in order to avoid a greater harm to the client's system. So we need to be patient in understanding why parts do what they do. If you really enter into uh, the part's understanding of itself and of the client system and of external circumstances, what that part does will make sense. There are reasons for it if you understand it from the perspective of the part. It can be that less experienced IFS therapists can become especially impatient when there are a lot of roadblocks to, quote, getting to the exile. We work through one layer of managers, we come up with another layer of managers, or we come up with a layer of firefighters, and it just seems like it goes on and on, and that can lead to frustration and impatience, which is really generated by the therapist's parts. Remember, that allowing these exiles to be given voice voluntarily can seem like a life and death proposition to many of the client's other parts, their protector parts. So what we're asking for as therapists to have access to these exiles is incredibly disconcerting to the client's protectors, especially when there's been a history of complex trauma, especially because of the attachment wounds, especially because of the experiences, right? Also, it's not just the exiles overwhelming, it's the activation of the firefighters that can have some very harmful, very maladaptive behaviors that managers are trying to guard against and to prevent from happening. Another place where IFS therapists get stuck is by neglecting the client's external context. Right? This is the external system that client system is involved with, their family, their home life, their work life, the other systems that their internal system is nested within. So we really want to make sure that we're not trying to open up things that would lead to harm coming from those relationships in the external system. There can be this effort to deny external constraints. There can be a collusion between the therapist's parts and the client's parts to act as if external constraints 
don't matter, and they do. Those folks like me who weren't trained in systems theory, who weren't trained in family therapy can be particularly prone to this. For example, I came from a more psychodynamic background where that was given less consideration in the way that I was trained. So one wants to think about one's own background. Fortunately, working with internal systems within IFS also gives us a perspective to be able to consider external systems. It was particularly helpful to me to introduce IFS into the interpersonal process group that I run. It was also helpful for me to do intimacy from the inside out training by Tony Irvine Blank to really get an idea of how we can work with IFS principles and external systems. The next one, and maybe the most important one, for at least from my perspective, is we get stuck as therapists in IFS therapy because of our own parts. We get stuck in IFS therapy because of our own parts. We really need to know ourselves. And what that means is to know our parts and how our parts interact within our own systems and how they influence how we interact with our clients. We, as IFS therapists, should be working with our parts on an ongoing basis. We should be in touch with our own parts while we're doing therapy with our clients. Right? If we notice that we're out of touch with our parts while we're doing work with our clients, that means that all kinds of shenanigans can be going on within our own systems that we won't be aware of. So there's no substitute for doing your own internal work as a therapist in order to be able to do therapy more and more fully with your entire being, right? I don't think that it's just the therapist's self that does the therapy. I think it's the therapist's self supported by parts who are self-led. I find that my parts are invaluable in doing the therapeutic work. They're precious. It's, they're not expendable. They're not dispensable at all. They're essential to doing the work. I, I wouldn't dream of doing therapy without the support of my parts. Now, that doesn't mean that every part of mine is present at every moment in every session with every client. I'm not saying that at all. But it is such a great thing to be able to have access to your parts when you're doing work. So there's a brief section here in this chapter on hospitalizing clients. Obviously, prevention of getting to that point is preferable, right? But sometimes clients come in, could be very early in the therapy. They could be extremely chaotic inside. They could be coming off of an inpatient unit uh, and beginning outpatient work with an IFS therapist and not be very settled. And so... So Dick and Martha talk about how one goal of hospitalization is to provide a safe, nurturing inpatient setting if one is accessible. Unfortunately, not every inpatient unit is like that. And so they wisely counsel that you consider the consequences of hospitalization because often the focus of treatment, usually the, tr the treatment of choice on hospital inpatient psychiatric units is medication. And that rarely is going to be given with a consideration of the client's entire system. So you want to think about that. At the same time, though, if we're dealing with a, with a system where parts are in danger of suiciding or they're in danger of acting out in ways that are really destructive and would have very terrible consequences for the client himself or herself or for others, 
right? We need to be considering questions of safety. And sometimes those kinds of more radical measures such as hospitalization are really the best options we have. Another aspect is to discuss what the parts really are. Dick and Martha are very adamant. They go beyond any other parts theories that I'm aware of. Structural theory of dissociation, DNMS, uh, any the Helen and Jack Watkins ego state therapy. They go beyond any of those to when they describe parts as separate autonomous persons within the system, like little people inside, each with their own personality. Dick and Martha tell us that, quote, the danger of viewing parts as abstractions lies in underestimating them and under-responding to their needs, end quote. So if we were to conceptualize parts as introjects, or we were to conceptualize parts as internal object representations, or we were to conceptualize parts as feeling states or ego states or anything that doesn't allow them the fullness of that like personhood within the person, then we can actually get into underestimating like how they actually operate and what they actually need. Now, Dick and Martha understand that that can be hard to swallow for a lot of IFS therapists. And so they say this too. If parts are people is too big of a conceptual leap for you, success with with IFS is still possible as long as you treat parts like people. As long as you treat parts like people, you can have that as sort of an unresolved question. There's been relatively little philosophical work around how that would actually be understood philosophically in terms of the understanding of human anthropology. So that can be, again, a tough thing to, to take in. But if we can work with parts as though they were complete people, Dick and Martha say that we can be successful with, with doing IFS therapy. Thank you for being here with me for chapter 13. It's, it has been a pleasure, and we'll see you on the other side.